he is really invested in this notion that he is a genius. I think it stems from the idea that he is really good at music and has an eye for fashion. So he thinks he has an eye for everything and he's surrounded by people who encourage him. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, and today, Baratunde Thurston is here to talk about Ye, aka Kanye West, and his whirlwind tour of attention-grabbing anti-Semitism. Big brands are ditching him, he's losing millions, and he's alienating fans worldwide. But as Baratunde and I discuss, Kanye isn't going anywhere. And later on, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and his new mega-cap philanthropic social club for billionaires, and how he's taking on Bill and Melinda Gates. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Baratunde Thurston to talk about Kanye West, aka Ye, just to give some context to the audience if I somehow can. I just pumped in Kanye West into Google. And like, these are all the headlines. Kanye West attacks family of George Floyd amid lawsuit. Kanye West comments on fallout from his anti-Semitic remarks. Kanye West alleges Jewish doctor might have wanted him dead. Kanye West storms out of soccer game after heated exchange with so-and-so. Like, it's hard to like keep track of everything he's doing at the moment, but the top line is what? <laughs> well, the top one is, uh, it's good to be back here on the Powers That Be. Oh, which, well, thank you. Peter, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> powerful with you. Um, if, if, if folks are detecting a uh, slightly reduced audio quality, it's because I'm in the high-end studio known as my car. Uh, nice. Literally sitting on the side of Sunset Boulevard. Uh, couldn't make it home in time, so we pulled over on the side of the road. What uh, an LA content podcast, creator you are. This is this podcast is important. And it interrupts <laughs> the, the commute uh, to talk about this. Yay should be rebranded as Boo. That's the headline. <laughs> <laughs> Con Boo West. The idea that we could ever keep up with all the headlines generated by this Tasmanian devil of uh, attention, kind of black holism, uh, it's impossible. It's impossible. And, and I even felt conflicted writing about this dude, talking with you about this dude, because in some weird way, we're feeding into his dark, twisted fantasy uh, that the entire universe revolves around him. But what seems to be happening is he has come up with a formula for self-promotion and uh, transgression and attention getting, uh, not just seeking. And it involves continually crossing lines of appropriateness. He's just in the kind of bonus round now where he's got all the power-ups, but they're power-downs in this case. And he's going for broke, literally. He used to be a billionaire and now he's not. And that's like a two-week journey. So there's there's a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, investing in, uh, in Parler, a app known for disinformation and right-wing paranoia that doesn't have enough users to even make money uh, probably is not a good idea if you're trying to maintain your wealth. Calling it investing is giving it <laughs> a lot more credit. It's, it's, a, it's a donation. If it's anything that's being invested in, it's his own ego. Or, and I, I heard Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher talk about this some weeks ago, it's actually taking advantage of someone 
who is clearly not of sound mind. And, you know, if we want to attribute some of this to his documented and publicly admitted mental health challenges, that's possible. So, so in that case, is that the person you hit up for $200 million? Is that the big exit that you were looking for, for your first round investors, George? You know, taking advantage of, uh, of an unwell person? There's been a lot of people willing to invest in the attention economics of yay. And uh, Candace Owens is in the front of the line uh, and her husband, George, as well, who have not, unlike Adidas and TJ Maxx and Skechers, uh, <laughs> like when Skechers demonstrates more scruples around <laughs> their returns on investment and business partnerships than you, you're the sketchy one. You know what I'm saying? So... There's a lot being revealed right now. Yeah, I mean, the Skechers thing was amusing to me. I mean, they it, when this was reported, Kanye West basically took a camera crew down to Skechers HQ trying to get them to buy his shoe and merch brand. And what's that pitch, Peter? What I can do for you what I just did for Adidas, which is make money, but then cause them to lose all that money in a week? What is- <laughs> no, totally. It would be like taking like Euphoria and shopping it to the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> That's good. You know, but this raises questions. Like I was talking about this with a friend the other day. There's obviously been musicians and artists in history who make good and popular music, but are bad people. Just curious what your thoughts on that are. Like, will you keep listening to Kanye West? Should people keep listening to Kanye West? Sorry, yay. (laughs) I have not actively sort of blocked his music from my playlists. I think the first thing I'm done doing and really most concerned with is making excuses for him. The permission that he grants to people to do horrible things and then justify it out of a sense of pro-blackness and pro-business savvy, which is a lot of the pieces of conversation I see around those who still remain fans. What I've seen happening around Ye very currently is that a lot more black people, out loud on the internet at least, are saying like, Ye had a point about the Jews. And that's where I got to actively say, hold up, wait a minute. That's nonsense. Ye's playing chestnut checkers. He just wanted to get out of his business contracts. And this is how we had to do it because, you know, you can't say things about Jewish people. I'm seeing people say this stuff. It's getting to this point where it's, we just lost the basic childhood thing of like, you don't hurt other people to get what you want. It's very, very simple. So I'm at the place of saying that. I'm at the place of no longer trying to look for a reason. And when it comes to the act of the music, I will still be able to enjoy some of his stuff, but with a lot less enthusiasm. And I'm not going to seek it. You know, It doesn't seem like the white lives matter, the anti-Semitism, the MAGA stuff going on Tucker Carlson. It doesn't seem like any of that is any sort of coherent ideology. There's no like, he's never had like a clear political viewpoint. And even when I first came to him, like I remember like a lot of white kids on campuses in like the early 2000s, I was into like conscious hip hop and like most deaf and quali. And like he was producing some of their stuff. And then he put out his first album. Unlike them, his antenna was more toward the pop mainstream, despite being a talented artist. He wasn't really, and correct if I'm wrong, I've really never detected him doing a lot of lyrics about politics. Obviously, the George Bush doesn't care about black people thing from Katrina was a big deal and a statement in a way. But his latest rants and posts on Instagram and whatever he's doing 
I mean, do you think he has any sort of coherent worldview or ideology? Or is, again, just, just, this is just about attention. Interesting. Um, I don't fully know, but here's some thoughts. I detect in some of the early music, uh, and there's a great episode of a podcast, it's Canadian. Uh, so it's a really nice podcast, CBC Front <laughs> It's so nice and polite. It's so nice. <laughs> and they, they have this um, reporter, cultural commentator, I think his name is El Amin, and it's dedicated to like his views on Kanye. And he describes some of the lyrics and even genius shows some of this early evolution. Kanye was always playing with contradictions. He was acknowledging that he was hyper-materialistic while also raising the specter of who was making money off of that materialism and how shallow we shouldn't be. And, and there's a credibility when you call out a behavior and acknowledge that you exhibit that behavior yourself. I actually love that. I think that's pretty mature. And, and so there's a lot of that in, in the early albums. But now I think it is the people who embrace him and the idea that he is important. I think he is really invested in this notion that he is a genius. People have been telling that to him his whole adult life and that that genius spreads way beyond music, way beyond fashion, into like designing schools and cities and economies and whole ways of being. It's the same infectious ego that Mark Zuckerberg exhibits. It's like, cool, you made a platform where we could judge each other by our faces you know, and like posts. And now you want to invest in like the Newark school system and save education for poor inner city black kids. Why? Just because you made money over here doesn't mean you know shit about this other area. And so I think Kanye, he also looks up to a lot of these other greats. He's always name dropping, you know, Picasso, Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, and outwardly comparing himself. And even at his, I remember him ranting at a concert that like, Gap wouldn't call him back or something. He's like, don't you think I deserve a chance? And like his investment fundraising technique was to like heckle the people he wanted money from in front of all his fans, which is very Trumpy. Look at the, how the, the media mistreats me. Like I don't have a chance to express myself, says the man at Madison Square Garden in a packed house, you know, who sold more albums than most. He has nothing but chances to express himself. So the victimization is also something that I think this new community around him, which is very different from the college dropout crowd, feeds in him. You're an outsider. Only you can save us, Kanye. You're misunderstood. You're unique. You're going to save Black people from themselves. So I, I, it is incoherent because I don't think it's grounded in any history or education. Van Lathan pointed that out on the TMZ interview when Kanye you know, said that the 400 years of, of slavery and oppression Black folk had experienced felt like a choice to him. Because there's so many of us. Why wouldn't we just not be enslaved and not be oppressed? And, and that's a very ahistorical and foolish you know, analysis on his part. So yeah, he's, uh, he's very incoherent. But I think it stems from the idea that he is really good at music and has an eye for fashion. So he thinks he has an eye for everything. And he's surrounded by people who encourage that. As divisive and horrible as a lot of his comments have been lately, I feel like some artists, some public figures, actors, whatever, would be quote unquote canceled or like erased from the culture. He's not going to go away despite all these companies dropping deals with him. It feels like he might be diminished, but because of the internet, will always have an audience. And also, this is an unfortunate byproduct of social media and our current politics. Um, 
you don't have to have a coherent or forward-thinking worldview, ideology, perspective. You can just be a reactionary person. You can be, you can float conspiracy theories. You can be a contrarian. You can say, well, they're coming after me. I'm a victim. Here's why. What about this? What about that? I'm just raising questions. All of that today passes for a gross kind of intellectualism. Like the other people stink. Here's why we're better. They suck, but you have no ideas of your own. A lot of people are okay with like raising conspiracy theories because they see it as like rebellious or they see it as he's really smart. He's onto something, you know? And it's just, it just plays into our current political audience and cultural audience in a way that I think means he's just, he'll always have people who think he's interesting, smart, cool, whatever. He can pretend that he is speaking truth to power. And in the previous eras, you know, this idea of like even canceling, part of how people fell out of favor with the public and disappeared is that they had an internal sense of shame and knew when to shut up. And part of it was that they literally lacked access to reach people. So even if they wanted to keep talking, no one would air them. There were a handful of networks they could go to, a handful of radio networks, newspaper op-eds. There were formal gatekeepers. And so to your point, this idea of like a thousand true fans, yeah, a psychopath can have a thousand true fans. A dictator can have a thousand true Bolsonaro, by the time people hear this, may still not have conceded and eventually will have to hand over the reins of power. But as we've seen in our own country, even a former president here who doesn't concede and breaks all the norms, he has access to people who will validate his perverse worldview. And that's the flip side of internet power. The gatekeepers are diffuse, so there aren't really any. And the shameless person can lean into their shamelessness, you know, <laughs> and just pretend I didn't say that. It's why Kevin McCarthy can deny having said something that's on audio of him saying it in terms of his criticisms of Trump and keep a job because there is no shame has no power because he still has a base of operations, a base of funding, a base of validation and psychological comfort because he can connect directly to all of that thanks to the internet in certain ways. So Kanye, you're right, he won't disappear as long as in his own head, he doesn't feel like he has to. What, what's required in this day and age is a level of self-control that you feel such shame that you opt out and you don't launch a Substack and you don't get on Gab and you don't hang out on 4chan where enough other you know perverse-minded worldview people can keep fueling uh, your weird fire. It's like the devil on your shoulder. In the internet age, there's always a devil on your shoulder egging you on to do dumb shit. You know, tweet that, say that, blame that group because you'll get something out of it. Even if you lose something. Well, he's lost over a billion dollars, but he's gained a fervent fan base that's going to ride with him even harder. And he'll monetize that. All right, man. Uh, enjoy your mobile content studio. Enjoy traffic in rush hour in LA. And we will talk soon. All right, Peter, good to see you again. When we come back, Ben Landy speaks to Teddy Schleifer about Eric Schmidt's Club for Billionaires. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, talking today to Teddy Schleifer. Hey, Teddy. Hey, Ben. So you have been reporting for a while on Eric Schmidt the former CEO of Google. He's worth maybe $20 billion or so these days. It's a down market, maybe a little bit less. But he spends most of his time now on various philanthropic projects that have tendrils in Washington and in the White House and all over the world. And last night, you scooped that our friend Eric has a new project in the works 
which to me sounded a little bit like Soho House for billionaire philanthropists. But <laughs> what is the actual pitch that, uh, that he is making? Sure. I think that honestly makes it sound uh, more glamorous than it is. So, so Eric Schmidt has a large philanthropic entity called Schmidt Futures, probably 50 to 100 people who, who work for him uh, in his post-philanthropic life. This is to say nothing of the hundreds of people who work for him in his family office. He's a lot of people who do a lot of things. That's just the level set there. Schmidt Futures, though, over the last couple of months has been working to set up a new kind of philanthropic advisory business um, called P150. But it is basically an attempt to get the wealthiest people in the world uh, to work together in a more efficient way to solve the world's great problems. As kind of longtime readers of Puck know, very, very wealthy people do not have the time to solve these problems. So the advisory class is very empowered, like people who are running the family offices for the wealthiest people in the world, the people who are the philanthropic advisors to wealthiest people in the world. These folks have enormous agenda-setting power, and they're able to kind of make decisions that have downstream effects all over the world, in philanthropy, in politics, in global health, in vaccine research. All these things that we experience in our world can ultimately be traced back to the philanthropic advisory class. So Schmidt wants to get these people talking together and working together in a much more efficient way. So last week in New York City, Schmidt's people gathered a bunch of these philanthropic advisors to kind of kick off this new effort called P150. This feels a, a tiny bit to me like intruding onto Bill and Melinda Gates' territory. Different concept in the Giving Pledge, but definitely building on some of the same ideas insofar as it's an elite group of philanthropists where you have to presumably commit a certain amount of money to, to join and be a part of this. Is there a sense in the high dollar world that the Gateses are sort of on their way out in this world. When you first mentioned this to me, my thought was, well, of course, there's an element of a power play that after the Gates divorce, after Bill's association with Jeffrey Epstein comes to light, that their brand has lost a little bit of its luster. And then, you know, along comes Eric Schmidt with what is essentially in some ways a competitor. So you're totally right that there are elements of this that are, are Gates-esque. The emphasis on philanthropic collaboration, sort of the, you know, larger than life tech CEO who oversees it all. The differences are this is not focused on individual donors, it's focused more on kind of the you know, second in command, the aides de camp. But yes, there is an element of this that is Gates adjacent. Bill Gates is not who he once was. Um, you know, I encountered some of this, Ben, when I was reporting a story earlier this year about the Giving Pledge, which is the flagship Gates philanthropy product at the Giving Pledge's annual summit. When I was talking to people who were entering that retreat earlier this year, there was lots of conversation about like whether or not Bill is still Bill, you know, Epstein, the divorce, um, you know, sort of even even kind of COVID conspiracy theories. These are all uh, new terrain for, for Bill Gates. And it's, it's kind of ironic, Ben, that, that Eric Schmidt might be playing a bigger and bigger role in that in that because obviously Schmidt has been dogged by, you know, by page six reporters or by his own conspiracy theories over the years. So he's he is hardly a clean break reputationally. You know, Eric Schmidt has his enemies. I'll put it that way. Bill Gates is still sort of the bell of the ball here. I don't want to overstate the reputational hit that he has taken. And, and I don't think Schmidt has the same gravitational pull that Gates does. But you are correct to sort of observe a little bit of a competitive element to these two projects. How exclusive is this new group? Is there, in fact, a certain amount of money that you need to commit or, or come into? Is there a screening process? Can I walk in the door? Ben, I'm still reporting out the exact figures here, but the sense I get from talking to people is that this is going to be 
a philanthropic entity that is going to be focusing primarily on people who have, you know, net worths that matter. This is going to be an entity that is uh, accessible not to everyone. Ultimately, they want to control philanthropic money at scale. And if this is, you know, a podunk foundation in Cleveland, I don't think you're invited to the retreats. Teddy, to what extent is this group about sort of saving the world, the philanthropic projects themselves? And to what extent is it also about the sort of professional development of bringing together these aides and these super smart people and putting them under one roof so that they can learn from each other? Yeah, you know, I think there's a small way to think about this and a bigger, more perceptive way to think about this. The small way to think about this is like, who cares? You know, some philanthropy advisors are getting together in a room to like, you know, workshop their RFPs and their their action plans and their theories of change, like boring. But I think the big way to think about this, there is an enormous amount of dry powder philanthropically that is going to go towards something at some point over the next 20 years. You know, you look at the net worth of these people, stock market be damned, it's going to go somewhere. And a big question that I'm interested in answering is to what and, and how well and, and when you can think about this group as maybe not the nerve center, but one nerve center at answering that big question. This could be the beginning of answering that big question about where do these billions, maybe even trillions of dollars of philanthropic capital go eventually? And that's the big way to think about this, not as a story about you know, a philanthropic networking group, but kind of uh, an answer to one of the great questions of capitalism, which is where do the winners spend their winnings? Well, sign up for the Stratosphere if you haven't. And uh, Teddy, thanks for stopping by. Appreciate it as always. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 